This is the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, I am Garrett, and I'm here with Shayra, Antonio, and Jim. And today we're going to be talking about the 2006 film Bug, directed by William Friedkin. Um, so, yeah, directed by William Friedkin, uh, starring Ashley Judd, uh, Harry Connick Jr., and Michael Shannon. Um, uh, this is the, the first film uh, for the Deadly Analysis that, that I was actually a choice of mine. Uh, I've been doing this podcast now for over a year, talked about many films, so I'm really glad that we get to do one that I picked. This film is not only one of my favorite horror movies, it's one of my favorite movies, period. I love it for a multitude of reasons, which we will be getting into in uh, the discussion today. Um, so before I sort of you know, fan gush all over the place about how awesome this movie is, I sort of want to uh, open up the floor and sort of give any sort of uh, give the my other co-hosts here any sort of initial impressions that they want to share, any uh, off-the-cuff thoughts or, or, or general ideas about uh, this film. Take it away, guys. I just want to throw out there that I think there was a missed opportunity on this movie when you have Harry Connick Jr. in a film and you don't, and it's about bugs and they're not singing, I got you under my skin. <laughs> I think it would have been so perfect, but um, yeah, I, I, I dig a lot of it. I do want to go into all of the different elements I liked, but I would have loved if they would have done that. Yeah, Harry Connick Jr. Uh, I think is is an underrated actor. He gets lots of uh, 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 play and attention for for his musical abilities, which he sometimes brings to the big screen. Um, but I think yeah, he's he's fantastic in this truly, and uh, it it shows I think what an underappreciated actor he is. Yeah, and he's playing a really complicated role here. I think that's one of the things I like the most about this film is that. Uh, uh, all of the characters have complexity to them, including uh, Jerry Goss, the abusive husband who is also suspicious of the psychopath, or rather the uh, the, the person who who has a paranoid uh, paranoid tendencies. Certainly, um, so I I think it's really interesting that it, he's playing this really complicated role, and uh, I think you're right, Garrett, that he doesn't get enough credit for the. Uh, his acting chops, so to speak, so. Yeah, um, for me, honestly, the takeaway that I had from the movie, the, the biggest initial impression I walked away with was, this is a fantastic, the thing I liked best about the movie, honestly, even more than, you know, the plot and stuff, which were all very interesting, is this is a movie just on production level that has like, what, seven people as the cast, an incredibly shoestring budget. This is an example of, of using your resources in a really creative and efficient manner more than anything else. The The storytelling is really well done. The camera work is really well done. You know, the sets are very uh, well put together and very believable. Um, I was reading about how they, you know, set up that aluminum foil room and the insane things they had to do to keep it from reflecting the cameraman and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a tightly shot movie. It's, uh, it's a great, example of working within the constraints that are given to you and producing something that is very well crafted you know i would contrast this movie for example with something like the hobbit as on the other end of the spectrum where you just have so much money thrown at a movie so many people thrown at a movie that it just completely goes out of control and you end up with a complete mess and then you have something like this which is probably done with literally one percent of the resources of something like the hobbit that is 150 times more tightly crafted 
I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was based upon a play uh, by by Tracy Letts, and it had a uh, a significant theatrical run. Michael Shannon is actually reprising the role that he uh, repri reprising the role in the film that he originated on stage. And uh, on stage, it's uh, well, uh, Tracy Letts is a renowned playwright. He got his big breakout hit with uh, August a Osage County, but this and uh, Killer Joe previous to it. Are, uh, are examples of just how good um, Tracy Letts is as a writer. Uh, now he's getting a lot of fame as an actor um, with a couple of you know, high profile films. He worked in The Post, for example. But uh, going back to his, his roots as a writer, this is, uh, this is an example of just how good he can be and how good he is with, with characters and morally, um, morally iffy characters. Agnes is a, uh, a problematic character, uh, R.C. Everybody in this, in, this, uh, in this film is a little seedy, a little off, a little, um, a little morally ambiguous. And uh, it makes it hard to, uh, it, it seems like they're creating a world in which everybody is, is untrustworthy. And, and I like how the film is able to, um, to 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 make us feel for these characters even though they are um so morally ambiguous on the other hand though to go back to the production for just a second while i think that you definitely have a really good point in that the tightness the the economic tightness of the movie is very much related to its previous life as a play um most stage adaptations feel like stage adaptations. And this one really did. They really took pains to, to visually craft it in a way where even though you actually, you actually, if you think about it, it pretty much, it tracks the play very closely. You know, it's like, it's shot in like three locations. The cameras does, don't move around a whole lot. There's like seven characters, et cetera. It has a lot of play-like elements, but they're, they're crafted in a way that, that pops out that third dimension that you're looking for in cinema. So yeah, I think a lot of that, of course, has to do with you know with William Friedkin being behind the camera. I mean, Friedkin, of course, famous for directing The Exorcist, one of the most famous horror movies of all time. And I think that you can sort of see his hand. You can there's there's I think a lot of clear stylistic similarities between The Exorcist uh, and this film. Um, and you know, at, while The Exorcist obviously gets a lot more attention uh, than than Bug does, I think that that's you know that, that that's in some ways a criminal offense because honestly, I think I would rate this film uh, above The Exorcist in terms of just overall quality. Um, but maybe that's a, a discussion for another time. But I would like to say, I suppose it's it's probably a good idea to to briefly summarize the the general narrative thrust of the film for in case anyone's watching who hasn't seen it. I'll try to do it in a way that doesn't spoil anything. Uh, but if you have not seen the film, the 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 basic gist. Uh, is that Ashley Judd and uh, Michael Shannon are two lonely, isolated people who sort of find each other and develop a, an awkward friendship. Uh, Harry Connick Jr. Uh, plays Ashley Judd, Judd's estranged husband, uh, um, who is abusive, uh, but also you know sort of concerned about this 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 loner of Michael Shannon who's comes in and sort of is uh, uh, moving in on his woman. Uh, and the two the the friendship develops in a way that shall we say uh, uh, it becomes mentally unhealthy for for both of them. Uh, you know, at, at bottom line, I think it's fair to say this is a, a film about paranoid schizophrenia and how it actually can be contagious and how, uh, you know, when you are lonely and isolated and the only person around you or, or only people around you uh, uh, have delusions, that those delusions can be more important than the, the, the reality that you, you live in. Um, 
and it's a, it, it's one of those I think rare films that does a fantastic job of exploring mental illness in a way that's maybe not necessarily clinically 100% accurate, but deeply, deeply disturbing and quite terrifying. Um, so with that sort of general sort of narrative thrust summary and a few of the key players um, uh, on on board. Um, I guess I'll, I'll come back quickly to Michael Shannon. This is the first film I ever saw Michael Shannon in. It was my first exposure to him. I'd never seen him before as an actor. Obviously now he's gone on to, to, to considerable acclaim uh, in other films, but really this, I mean, he is just so, I mean, Jim, you said he's, he's complex. All the characters are complex. And yeah, because on the one hand, he's sympathetic and you care for him. But on the other hand, he's clearly deeply disturbed and you know he's dangerous. Um, and it's it's hard to know exactly, you know, how to sort of reconcile your own conflicting emotions about him and indeed about all of these characters. Um, and that incredible emotional complexity is in a lot of ways what, what keeps this film afloat for me. I uh, have family members that remind me very much of Peter's character. Um, it's kind of reminded me of Alex Jones, honestly, a lot of the uh, rhetoric that he started spouting off, but obviously that's why some of my family members sound like that because they listen to Alex Jones. So, um, but that's exactly the point of this film and kind of, it was kind of sad for me to watch more so than scary because I was like, this is exactly how they got indoctrinated in these viewpoints. They hear someone spouting off some slight truths and skewing it in a way uh, because they're not educated enough to be able to research it for themselves, skewing it in a way that they can tell them that the government's watching you or listening to your conversations or implanting bugs in you or whatever. Um, but it's, it's sad because this is accurate to what actually is occurring right now in america <laughs> like this is literally what a lot of these radio show hosts are doing to people who are isolated people these are generally isolated people all they engage in is these radio shows um to get their news so and it's kind of the film's kind of a microcosm of that in so many ways because you know again there's there's several scenes basically where sort of peter says to agnes look you know you don't have to believe this i'll just go you know just you know if, if you think i'm crazy i don't want to be part i don't want to be here if i'm not welcome and the thought of being left alone again is so terrifying for Agnes that she actually is willing to suspend her own understanding of reality in order to stay connected to somebody. And that's like, again, in so many ways, like what I think a lot of people who are out there in these sort of you know, fringe communities are like, is you know they they like again they're lonely they don't have a lot of friends the only real friends they have are people they meet through Alex Jones or whomever, and the thought of losing that friendship of losing that minimal social support that they have is so terrifying that they are willing to suspend their better judgment in order to uh, to to stay connected to people and it's it's hard for a person again like myself I think who has a fairly healthy social network and people with you know diverse viewpoints and so forth to be able to really understand how terrifying that can be to lose your only friend um, to the point where it might actually be worth sacrificing your understanding of reality and even your own sanity in order to hold on to that one friend. That's one of the things that's uh, an interesting part of the whole descent, so to speak, that Agnes goes through and that Peter goes, goes through with her. Because, you know, it, it, Peter starts out as a relatively, he, on the surface, he looks like he has enough shit together like he he looks like he's you know fairly normal i mean that's one of the 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 questions that i uh directing questions that i that i would have for william friedkin is you know is is it a deliberate choice to make peter slightly off 
or is it not, isn't an even stronger choice to have Peter come on this uh, on the screen and immediately be completely charming? Um, it is sort of an interesting uh, question that, that 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 I'm sure they had to wrestle with at one stage. But one of the one of the things you sort of keyed me into was when, and this is spoilery. Um, we will probably to to new viewers sometimes we do get into to some spoilers at the end here. Um, when Agnes is going on her super mother bug uh, rant, the rant that qualify uh, culminates in her declaring herself super mother bug, is uh, he keeps saying, "Okay, now get another piece. Now get another piece," um, so that he is uh, getting her to create the reality with him, that he's not inflicting his reality upon her, but rather together they are creating this this delusional sense of, of um, this delusional reality that of course leads to their, uh, leads to what happens at the end. Um, I think that's an important point, um, even as Peter, and, and one of the questions I have uh, for, for the rest of you as well, and, and then I wrestle with as I look at this film is, um, to what degree, like when, is Peter ever being deliberately manipulative? Now, I think there are a few points when he is, but there are, I, I also, I think there are several points in which Peter is just genuinely sharing the thing that he believes uh, with RC and, and uh, Agnes and with, uh, with Goss to, to a lesser extent. Um, to what extent is this his genuine fear and to what extent is he fucking with them? Um, well, I guess that's, go ahead. Before we get to that, I think the much more interesting discussion, well, I don't know about much more interesting, but more interesting discussion is, um, is how do we know they're delusional? Um, I think the film is relatively clear that they are. Oh, okay. So yes, lay out for me the lay out for me the case where it's where the possibility that they're not delusional is falsified. The possible, the um, there are no helicopters around. We never see any helicopters except in uh, when we're in their reality. Um, so that's but we do hear the bugs buzzing and zapping in the bug zappers. Yeah, but we never actually see the bugs either. It's not just that we don't see the helicopters. We never actually see a bug. Yes, we never we never see helicopters. We never see bugs. Um, on the other hand, a dude does show up who's clearly looking for Peter, and from the way that he talks, unless we're meant to infer an unreliable narrator perspective, which the movie never cues us into in any way, um, the what he says seems to indicate that he that that something was done to Peter that he wants to cut out to 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 reverse. He seems to play along with the narrative that Peter presents. Um, and, and, and then, of course, the other aspect of that is in the credits of the movie, there are two scenes shown in juxtaposition to each other, which both, again, cast further doubt on the reality of what we've just experienced. So I don't know. I, I, the, I came away with the movie thinking that the director intended for it to be completely ambiguous, whether they were nuts or whether they were actually in on this elaborate conspiracy theory. I did not get the impression that the director wanted us to conclude ultimately that they were delusional. There was too much ambiguity thrown in there. Is that just my take or have some of you come away with that as well? 
I actually had the same, we had a long discussion about that. <laughs> like what, what's going on here? Because it's pretty obvious to me that they're on the level of aliens, you know, um, these conspiracy theory types, but this doctor did come in and start spouting off stuff, but was he doing it to manipulate her because he was trying to get them to go to help and lying to them to get them to get the help that they need? Or was, uh, he obviously wasn't a robot. I mean, he was bleeding out unless, you know, the robots bleed out. I, it seemed like he was a human once he got stabbed. Um, and he was like, look, look, you know, he's not a person. And she was like, um, yeah, he is. <laughs> like, but she still went with it. I don't know why. It was, uh, oh, it's really tough because they make it go back and forth. I mean, he did say that, that her child is still around and that he can get her to access her child again. And I can't think of any doctor who would actively go to somebody's house and lie in that way. I don't know if that's a common practice also, with doctors. the name of her son. Yeah. She never says, she never mentioned it. Right. So, I, I mean, look, I'm not a... I'm not a therapist. I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. I don't, you know, but um, there are two things that that doctor does that makes me think that either a, he's not a doctor or B he's a really shitty doctor. And the first one he does is like free base. Um, I don't think uh, there are many doctors who, who uh, use the drugs that their patients are on in order to uh, to connect with them more. And not even question if there might be angel dust like laced in it or, or something crazy. Like he's just like, ah, can I have some of this? <laughs> like, I, think, I think that goes to the point of suggesting that he's not actually like a doctor in an actual clinic or something, but a much more sinister agent of, you know, some shadowy power who gives very few fucks. And that's why he feels presumptuous enough to sort of barge in and, and uh, smoke somebody's pipe. Um, just, just to sort of contextualize this a little bit, by the way, have any of you guys seen the Mel Gibson movie Conspiracy Theory? Because there's a lot of similar, yeah, there's a lot of similar themes and, and sort of, and, and that same sort of like, is he paranoid or is all this crazy shit really true kind of juxtaposition that I thought came off very strongly in this movie. Yeah, um, Jim, I want to hear what the second thing is here in just a sec, but I also want to answer Antonio's question there from earlier before we get too far from it. Uh, I, I didn't feel the film was ambiguous at all, but I, th I think it's fascinating that you do. And I, I think I like all well, great films when there's multiple interpretations, it makes it much more interesting. Um, but what, the way I would sort of square the things you're pointing to is clearly something has happened to Peter in the past. He's been in an institution. He probably really served in the military. Maybe they really did perform some sort of experiment on him. Um, uh, all, all, something like that is almost certainly true of his past. Um, but because of his fragile mental state, he has built on these horrid experiences and extrapolated all this sort of stuff. So everything about the bugs and, of course, about the machine and so forth, all that is, is, is just a figment of his imagination. So he's, you know, he's not completely crazy in the sense that some of the stuff he says about his own past is likely very true, uh, but it's also almost certainly highly embellished and uh, exaggerated well past the point of reality. Um, so that's my thoughts on the, 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 whether or not he's crazy. Um, Jim, I wanted to pass it back to you to say, what's the other thing that Dr. Sweet does that makes you think he's not really a doctor? Buys into the delusions of his patients. Um, I was a paramedic for two years and they taught us sort of rudimentary, um, dealing with, uh, mental health crises. And the number one rule was never, 
uh, buy into the delusions of your patients. If they say that there are that there are bugs, you don't go, oh yeah, I see one. That's that's like rule number one. And the idea that this doctor does that immediately discredits him, either as a doctor or as a good doctor. Um, I so that's those are the two things that make me find him to be unreliable. Um, and uh, I've got a larger sort of um, theory about Dr. Sweet's involvement in this that, that I'll be happy to share with you. But um, I wanted to like sort of throw it back to you, Antonio, before, since we're, since I'm sort of disagreeing with you, I want to give you a chance to respond before I go into a larger, uh, larger uh, discussion about that issue. Oh, no, um, you can pr pretty much go ahead. There's not, I mean, I, I think that you can validly interpret the, the, the movie as them just being nuts. Um, I also think that you can validly interpret the movie, particularly given the, the shots intercut in the end credits. Um, you can validly interpret the movie as a fantasy, probably. And you can also, and you can, and I think you can also interpret it as, as a sort of like conspiracy theory type idea where some or a substantial majority of the crazy allegations made are actually in some way correct. Um, and, and, but yeah, you know, I, I definitely, I de definitely some of the points that, that led me in the direction of thinking that it might be plausible that they weren't nuts is, you know, he knows uh, the son's name. Um, we see his body unburned at, after the end of the movie. Um, and uh, you, you hear bugs in the zappers. Um, there's a there's kind of like a weird scene when they when he after he pulls the tooth and they look the, and they look through the microscope at the at the tooth and he says oh there's millions of them and then she looks and immediately sees the exact same thing that he sees and then the camera immediately cuts to a, a shot that looks like it's under a microscope of like a bunch of shit moving around really fast and so it's it sort of implied that this is what this is, that this is what they see and so again it could be simply a completely subjective story from beginning to end where where it seems really real to them but they're just completely crazy the whole time but i think there's also a hint of of potential plausibility to it it does seem kind of nuts obviously but that's but that's what makes it so interesting is is it seems so nuts but they put so many little elements of plausibility in it that you're kind of like huh and that's why i brought up um the mel gibson movie conspiracy theory earlier is because that is one that unambiguously concludes in favor of all the crazy shit being true but it strings you along for about 85 90 percent of the movie where thing builds upon thing and you just increasingly think to yourself mel gibson is just fucking crazy and then at the end at the very very end it's like nope it was all actually true the whole time and that could be based off of the whole mk ultra thing everybody thought that was a crazy conspiracy theory and then once it was proven to be true you know, it, it was like, oh, okay, we might need to be a little bit more flexible on what we call bullshit because sometimes, you know, the truth is actually weirder than fiction. And so it's, it is something to keep open-minded about. And obviously as people who tend to question in everything, but still watch horror movies, that's literally what we do. So it, this is kind of a great film because it makes us question, wait, is this really happening? Is this not like what's going on? How is this supposed to be taken? And um, like, even just the introduction of Peter, you see him and you're like, he seems like a nice guy, but the camera angles are telling me something else is going on with this character. So 
Um, you're always questioning him and not trusting him. They even bring that up in the dialogue, though. You know, like, oh, do you even trust me? No, <laughs> I don't. I certainly don't trust you. But that's they have to open up that full trust, even if it sounds crazy. That's how they both break down each other's walls and then get in this toxic uh relationship together but i found a really interesting review on rotten tomatoes um by a person who's not a legit film critic and basically the guy was saying that this film is a government conspiracy they put it out to try to make people like peter seem crazy when he is speaking absolute truth and everybody's buying into it. And I found that to be the most interesting thing about this film is that someone took away from the film that the film was a government conspiracy. So take what you will from that one. Oh, that is fantastic. I am so glad you found that. That's wonderful. That, that, that brings so, I mean, again, I kind of feel sorry for that guy, but at the same time, uh, it, it so underscores, you know, the, the, the point uh, of, of, of this sort of the social dimension to, to mental illness. Um, and yeah, this, this touches back on, on several things we've already, already brought up. Um, but I think, yeah, that, you know, again, his rants are seeded with, with elements that are maybe are, I won't go so far as to say they're necessarily true, but they're at least plausible. You know, the government has performed experiments on soldiers and so forth and stuff like that. And you mentioned MK ultra. Um, and so again, the film and the script definitely want to draw you into their paranoid fantasies. They want you to share what it's like for them. Uh, and so, yeah, I think they're, they, they are seeding it with things that people might sort of recognize, or maybe they've heard these conspiracy theories before, maybe they, they even believe in them and that will draw the audience in more to their paranoia um and because yeah i mean it, it, it's it's an old trope in art right that, that that if insanity is contagious then then it could be contagious through works of art you know you could read a novel that would drive you insane or hear a song or or watch a movie that would drive you insane i mean these these are themes which we see in other other works and we've touched on another other things we've talked about here on this podcast uh, so the idea, and maybe potentially even I am a real world example here of a film that might actually help you know, terrifyingly push someone over the edge into insanity and, and make them uh, indulge in these paranoid delusions. I mean, if that's not effective filmmaking, then I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, that is that is fascinating that uh, this is a government conspiracy. I just wonder who's all in on it. Like, is Tracy Letts in on it? And, you know... Billy Letts, uh, Tracy Letts's mother wrote that uh, having a baby in Walmart movie. I wonder if uh, if that was sent out by the Walmart Corporation in order to uh, to get more people to to go to Walmart. Uh, it's a giant corporate conspiracy as well. Uh, no, nah, I it's crazy. Um, that, but I think it's I think that's very. I'm glad you found that as well, Shara. That's great. Um, Getting, I, I want to sort of circle back if I can to um, Dr. Sweet's character, because I think that the question that Antonio brought up of whether or not Peter is crazy, uh, there, there's, uh, whether or not, let's, let's try and dial that back, um, whether or not Peter is mainly delusional, um, I think is a central question to interpreting this film. Um, can we come up with a narrative in which Dr. Sweet is both there and not a doctor, something that accounts for all the evidence? And one of the things that I came up with, and this is this might be a little conspiracy theory-y, 
as well. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I wonder, like he enters with Goss. Goss is with him when Dr. Sweet enters. So what is the scene that happened off camera? I mean, is it perhaps possible that Sweet is not a doctor, somebody who was set up by Goss to uh, first talk to RC and then talk to uh, talk to Agnes and Peter directly. Whether or not that this is something that Goss set up in order to uh, flush Agnes out of this relationship, and then of course back into Peter or back into uh, Goss's arms. That is that is sort of a narrative that I think has equal plausibility. That this is that this entire scene is a thing that Goss set up so that. Um, so that Agnes would be uh, uh, free of this 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 toxic relationship with Peter, and then that explains why Sweet knows the name of of Lloyd, and why why Sweet knows um, that uh, that Agnes lost the child, and that that would be the thing, according to at least in Goss's mind, that would be the thing that would snap Agnes out of it. That would be the thing that would give Sweet some ethos, some uh, credibility, and then be able to to draw Agnes out. Garrett, you uh, have have already unmuted your microphone. Sorry, yeah, I don't mean to, to, to monopolize too much, but I just want to say quickly, I agree that that's consistent with everything that's on screen, but I don't think it's as plausible. Um, uh, to me, it seems to me that the, the more plausible interpretation is that he is, again, maybe not necessarily a doctor in the traditional sense, but he's definitely someone from either the government or some sort of health institution who's tasked with getting Peter back. Um, he's gone to the town. We know he's been asking around because we heard the rumor that someone was asking around about him. Um, and he talked to Goss and that's where he found out, uh, uh, Agnes's son's name. And he, you know, he filed that piece of information away. He enlists Goss to help get Peter away, which Goss is happy to do because Goss wants Peter gone as well. I find that more plausible because I mean, I've tried to imagine for a moment that you're a friend of Goss or an acquaintance. What on earth would he have to do to you or promise you that would get you to agree to go into a place where two people are clearly mentally unstable? They've put tinfoil all over the, the, the room everywhere. Um, you know, if, if someone asks me for a favor to help him out and help out with his wife and to go in there, I, I walk, take one step in that room and go, holy shit, I'm in way over my head. I get the fuck out. Um, so, so I, uh, I don't find the idea that he's on Goss's side, rather that Goss is pulling sweet strings to be, to be as plausible. Let me, um, let me go back to something that Jim said, because I actually think it's very interesting and, and that we should discuss it a little bit. Um, and that's, um, Jim says that, uh, that the, how, how you interpret the movie is going to hinge very strongly on, on, uh, whether Peter's credible or not. And I'm not sure that's true. Is that true? Because um, I think I think I don't think the point of the movie is whether Peter is credible or not. I think I think the I think the reason why it, ambiguity is introduced into the narrative is precisely because it's not a story about whether or not Peter's credible. It's a story about how Peter and um, what's her face, Ashley Judd's character, are uh, are Agnes. That's right. Um, are playing off each other to to intense in this intense in this increasingly intensifying um increasingly unhealthy kind of way um i think that's really what the story is about the thing it it, it doesn't it, there's not really a bottom line to the story the story doesn't really have a moral per se it's more an exploration it wants to show you these two characters interacting and then that's that's the sum of the movie it doesn't want to draw a line under it at the end and say 
and then blah, blah, blah. Then they lived happily ever after. And then they were all crazy or whatever. It takes pains, I think, to actually avoid that frame, that way of framing. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you there, Antonio. I think, again, speaking big picture here, the thing that I absolutely love most about this movie is that I was never able to get ahead of it, not for a minute. I understood exactly what was happening as it happened. But, you know, if, if I paused the film at any point the first time I saw it, I could not have anticipated what was going to happen in the next scene or in the next a minute from where we were. 95, 98% of the movies I see, you know, like most people, you, 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 all, you know how they're going to end, you know, 10, 20 minutes in, you know, and that's not necessarily a criticism. The, you know, stories almost follow a very similar pattern. They have similar sort of uh, uh, vocabulary to them. So you, once you see enough stories, you can anticipate how they're going to play out. But I think this film just completely bucks all my rules, everything that I'm familiar with. I, mean, I, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with Tracy, Tracy Letts because I don't know how he came up with this story. I don't know where what the impetus was because it's just such so unique. I, I, I don't know. I can't really, really compare it to The Exorcist, but that's more in, in how it's directed rather than how it's written on, on, on the page. I, I can't compare this to anything else because it's just so fascinating to me about how creative it is and how much it does not follow traditional rules of storytelling, but is nonetheless completely comprehensible as you go along. It's not like David Lynch, for example, where everything's just fucking weird for being weird's sake. The story makes sense, but it doesn't follow any kind of traditional playbook. And I just love that. After seeing so many movies and getting so anticipating where it's going to be, I love being fooled like that. I was totally fooled in that for the moment that Sweet walks into the hotel, all of us were sitting, there's four of us sitting on a couch and we're all like, where's Goss? Where's Goss? Where's Goss? Where's Goss? Where's Goss? He has to save them. He's the asshole. He hit her. He's abusive as fuck. He's robbed her. But where's our savior Goss? When is he going to save her? Where the fuck was Goss? And he was, what, just hanging out outside the hotel when it went up in flames? Was he plotting for her to do this mutual suicide thing? Did he hear Sweet getting stabbed or not? Like, where the fuck was Goss? It, I was fully expecting Harry Connick Jr. to actually swoop in and be the hero. <laughs> and he was not there. So, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad they didn't go that direction because that would have made me root for the abusive asshole even more. I think the film does a great job of like making Goss this complicated character. Like Nana, he's he's a horrible person at the beginning. He's 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 a fucking bully, really. I mean, the way he treats Peter and the way he treats Agnes, he's an asshole, he's a bully. And then by the end of it, he's right? What? Uh, the the moral ambiguity of flipping that on its head the way it is is a masterful writing, uh, masterful writing on the part of Tracy Letts, and I, and that's what I really liked to that I I sort of picking up where you're where you're laying what you're laying down there, Shayra, because I thought it was I thought it was fantastic that he's both right and a complete fucking asshole. Yeah, um, I I honestly think with Goss, did the government abduct him afterwards like he led him where they needed to go and then they were like all right let's you know do a brain wipe of him or like he's served his purpose like that could go along with what antonio was saying where this may actually be a government conspiracy uh because if goss was trying to get back together with agnes and we know even though he was abusive to her he did love her very much um why didn't he save his wife in in his mind that was his wife not his ex 
why didn't he save his wife in that situation? It seems really strange. So I think that almost the fact that Goss didn't save her might back up Antonio's uh, argument about ambiguity there. There are a couple other ambiguities, I think, that are subtler. I listed the most obvious ones, but a couple that I just realized I forgot to mention um, are uh, there. One is um, she lives in a motel room. Presumably the walls aren't super thick and presumably there's occasionally people on the other side of the wall. Um, and there's a lot of like loud noises, including Peter screaming extensively at the top of his lungs as he rips his fucking tooth out of his head. And like nobody even knocks like it's completely silent and that that's unusual and sort of goes in the pushes in the direction of this being something where there's a perimeter, you know, where there's a periphery involved here. Um, and then another thing is the, the extensive amount of setup that got put into the room by the end, you know, they bought flypaper in bulk, they bought raid in bulk, they bought, aluminum paper enough to literally cover you know how many square feet it's got to be like you know six thousand square feet of of aluminum foil or something like that all these like ultraviolet lamps and stuff like that and at no point is anybody like wow that's a lot of aluminum foil what are you using that for or maybe i'll call the police because this person who just bought a bunch of aluminum foil also just bought a giant drum of motor oil you know of fuel um and and again, the fact the fact that all of this just proceeds completely blithely, without any question, without any interruption, without any anything, also sort of plays into the potential ambiguity of what's going on here. Well, um, I'll uh, I'll just interject real quick here as um, kind of funny. Uh, I, I directed a, a stage version of this, and I bought um, two industrial-sized rolls of aluminum foil, and uh, they, they didn't question me. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, it, it was two in, two giant uh, rolls of that, that that we used to cover the stage. Um, I, I think uh, to, to sort of go back to, to, I mean, we're still dancing around this question of is Goss, or check that, is uh, Peter delusional is, is is there any uh basis to what he's saying we're still dancing around that question and and that sort of proves the sort of primacy of that question um as i was approaching directing this i had to make one de the, the first decision i made was whether or not peter was delusional whether or not this was a government conspiracy and what i decided was that 30 percent of what uh peter says is true and the other 70 percent is what his his imagination is filled in. Um, now, obviously, this isn't a uh, a podcast about a play production in Evansville, Indiana, that nobody saw. Um, but the, it is, you know, we want to stay focused on the film, and so I, I I still think that the film hold like I didn't get that from nowhere. The first exposure that I had to this. Um, was from the film, and I thought that the film went on rewatch recently. Um, I found the film stuck to that like 70%, 30%, 30% of what he says is real, and then the other 70% is, is, is delusion. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think it's super important to emphasize that there's, that, that there's a possibility of a fallacy of the excluded middle here, right? In other words, in other words, Peter, Peter may be completely nuts or he may be completely credible, but odds are, it's neither. Odds are it's going to be somewhere in between, as you said, you know, it, it, toward the more incredible, you know, maybe it's only that he was in the war, 
and then he was then he went nuts afterward and on the extreme a more extreme end maybe they did form experiments on him but they weren't about bugs or what have you you know what i mean um so so this whole spectrum of possibilities exists for the viewer of the movie and it's kind of up to the individual viewer to decide how much they're going to weight that um i made work on there uh, that uh, um uh, first off, uh, I, I actually did see Jim's production of the, the the play. I was actually a part of it. I was a stagehand, and I, I, I voiced the yeah, a very important stagehand. He helped create the uh, the gasoline smell, and he was Pizza Harris. I've got a. I have yeah, two lines of Pizza uh, Harris. Garrett was uh, offering Agnes and uh, and Peter pizza. Uh, uh, pizza that was uh, you know obviously trying to poison them or or do something to them. That's you're a bad guy in this movie. Yeah, that's another thing that's never explained, right? Where does the pizza come from, right? They didn't order it. So did was that something Goss did? Was that something Dr. Sweet did? Or I mean, did they forget? Yeah, yeah, that's possible too, right? Yeah, so that's uh, another interesting uh, uh, issue that's, that is thrown out there and never really addressed. Um, but but Antonio, uh, to your, your point about yeah, no one asking questions about buying the, the tinfoil and stuff like that, uh, and no one making questioning about the sound. I think, as I recall, the film is set in Oklahoma, I think it is. Um, yeah, yeah um, now, I, I have not spent much time in Oklahoma, but I spent a decent amount of time in West Texas, and it does not surprise me, at least in a similar sort of area, that people would mind their fucking business. That's the kind of place where people do not ask questions. <laughs> they let people do whatever the hell they want to do. I wasn't going to interrupt you, Antonio, but I lived in Oklahoma for uh, for two years, and when you said people were screaming, I was like, that's just another day in Oklahoma, man. Um, it's a great place if you like wind. Um, so, but yeah, I, I, I guess, uh, I think you're right though, Antonio, when you say that there's the, the excluded middle, I made the decision that it's like the 30, 70 rule. Um, when I had to interpret this, this work, I don't know, I would sort of like to sit down with William Friedkin and say, okay, to what degree is he correct? What, to what degree is this, the delusions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that there's, but I think as a director, you had to make that decision. Um, and I, I see where you're, I see where you're getting this ambiguity from, um, I would still sort of tilt it toward the side of, of, of a paranoid schizophrenic or, or, um, some sort of mental. Why illness. not both? <laughs> I'm that person. Why can't it both be true? Like he could be very much disturbed while also actually being pursued by a government organization. Um, and that would be the thing that could make it credible that he should not be trusted. But how much truth is he speaking? You know, we don't know what he's actually been through. We don't know what kind of experimentation that actually happened to him. He's not trustworthy in his information. So I, I think that we can we can say I think the film is pretty unambiguous on one thing, at least that at least part of what goes on between them has to be a delusion, because I think we see it unfold in real time. We see her develop part of the paranoid fantasy with his prodding. Um, that's not something that, you know, that 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 Peter has discovered through his independent research and, you know, was hoping that she would find. She literally creates that out of whole cloth, I mean, not whole cloth, but uh, uh, out of those little bits and pieces that he fed her and her own experiences with her son and so forth. And that whole thing about I am the super mother bug, which again, very powerful moment. Um, but that to me is, uh, that's that, that part and a few other parts of that speech are 
obviously paranoid fantasy. And again, so some of the some of the possibly could be true, and the exactly how much is is certainly open to interpretation. But I there's think there's only one problem with that. The sex scene is really disgusting, disturbing. There was a moment where they kiss and there's like the stretch of drool and everyone collectively was like, oh, that's not okay. It was not sensual. I got to see some nice boobs uh, and I was not at all going, oh, those are some nice boobs. I was mainly thinking, this is gross. This is disturbing. I want this to stop. I feel uncomfortable. I feel violated. Um, it was more disturbing than her getting hit by Harry Connick Jr. It was, and we've actually talked about this with certain sex scenes, they can be triggering to people. That was absolutely disgusting to me. I don't know if it's triggering, but it was like, I want this to stop and never happen again. And I feel like the director was implying something insidious happening in that situation. Now, do is that an insidious thing of here's how they're going to have a toxic relationship? Or is this a literal uh, infection that they are both getting? And I mean, I guess that could be open for interpretation, but it was really gross. <laughs> like, and I think that's a fascinating decision, again, on, presumably on Friedkin's part, right? Because you could imagine that being done a different way. You could imagine that being a moment of tension relief, right? Where it was just sort of a more of a beautiful thing where you sort of, you feel their their connection and you, you sort of have this little warm fuzzy for a little bit before going back into the horror. But he doesn't let you have that moment of, of breather. You know, he, he continues to ratchet up the discomfort um, and the, 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 the scheminess of the whole experience. Um, so Garrett, honestly about the about the sex scene is that it's um it, rather most sex scenes are shot to reflect the emotional connection and this sex scene was shot to completely eliminate the emotional connection and focus in on the biological connection and i think that's what chair's talking about like you know with the drool and all that etc it focuses on the fact that they biologically connected that's the importance of that sex scene to the movie or of showing it, you know, they could obviously have implied it off camera and discussed it later or what have you. Um, but I think the fact that the implication of showing it is to show that they are biologically connected in some way. And again, does that raise the ambiguity? I don't know. It doesn't, I don't think it detracts from it though. I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, again, you could, you could take sort of a you know, feminist lens on this if you want, because, uh, you know, I had somewhat similar reaction about the, the boobs, right? There's, yeah, that's, that's nudity. And that's, that's something that should be sort of, you know, titillating to the male gaze and all that stuff, but it completely does not. It's, it's, it's so disturbing and so upsetting that it subverts that traditional sort of male gaze, which is sex, which sex scenes very often play to. And there's a, uh, at the end of the sex scene, there's a really intense close-up of a bug at the end of it. And it's sort of a, a quick close-up and then it cuts to black and then it's back to, uh, it's back to post-coital during the evening. It's actually a mantis eating something, if I remember correctly. Oh, uh, well, what? It was some, it was a bug the, eating the another bug. Eating something. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, it was... For me, because I didn't know anything about this movie going in. I went in completely just not any knowledge of any aspect of it. And I was like, oh, my God, they got some bugs in them. That has to be why it's called bugs. And I was waiting for that horror element to hit because I was like, there it is. All right. So let's see uh, what alien creature like fell to the earth and got embedded in them or that never happened. <laughs> but but it. it it felt like that's what it was implying. So I have a hard time with that sex scene because 
if it was meant to be pretty obvious that they were crazy, I feel like that scene would have played out differently in the film. Now, obviously, this is a director's choice of how he played out that scene, but um, it seemed like he was implying that a bug infection happened. I thought she was going to give birth to bugs, honestly. <laughs> like, I thought she was going to birth bugs out of herself or a big bug creature thing. I, I was waiting for um, some, you know, David Cronenberg style, like, you know, animatronic crazy thing to come out of her. I don't know, but. You want to know one subtle thing, by the way, about that mantis thing, et cetera, that I found really, I, I found was really a nice touch in the film. And maybe, maybe this is just because I grew up on a ranch and therefore was around bugs all the time. Um, and so like have, kind of a, a awareness of them. I look at a bug and I go, oh, there's a beetle. Oh, there's a ladybug, what have you. But one of the things I noticed is for all the discussion of aphids in the film, none of the bugs shown are aphids. Uh, I just want to throw in there, Shara, because I, I did not go into the film cold. I saw the trailer and I think you know, the trailer is masterfully done because the trailer makes you think that's what it's going to be about too. You know, you, you, you the, the trailer. So you know, even the trailer is trying to trick you into thinking it's going to be something else. And then I'm like, wait, is this psychological thriller or is this a horror film? I'm really confused as to where, where I am. And I think that's why I couldn't predict what was going on. And in a way, that is what makes him so masterful in his directing, because you're sitting there wondering what the fuck is going on? Why can't I figure this out? This is a mystery. So I, I appreciated that, honestly, because... Like you said, it's refreshing when you can't predict 10 minutes into a film uh, what's going to happen. So, I mean, honestly, I, at first, my initial reaction was when I saw Peter, I was like, is he a bug? Because he kept doing weird things with his, like, ticks and stuff. And I was like, maybe he's the bug. Maybe he's going to give her bug babies, you know? <laughs> that was what I took from it at first, so... And within the delusions that they create, I think you're absolutely right. They do give birth to bug babies. We made them, she says, um, when we when we had sex. Um, that is, so within the, the context of their delusions, that's exactly what happened. Um, but I, I, I'm sort of with Garrett on this and the fact that I think the film is unambiguous in the fact that we, do, well, we never see any bugs except for that one mantis shot. Um, so, yeah. Well, we saw we saw like little uh, creatures like uh, maggots. I think were yeah, were shown at one point in time during the sex scene. Um, there was when they looked for the egg sac, they cut to these like moving stuff. Um, there was implications that there were actually bugs in the editing of the film. Obviously, yeah, but... that can't play out in a play. So um, I don't know how that is portrayed in a play. Obviously, you guys would probably be the experts on that. I'm sure you didn't have cuts of you know, bugs pop up on the, you know, stage. So there's, um, yeah, there's cutaway scenes where, where they, where they will show those little flashes, you know, which are, are sort of like the transition moments. Um, but I mean, again, there's a clear create, create decision The Friedkin, if he'd wanted to, could have shown us bugs in the scene in situ, you know, on the, the bed, uh, uh, you know, through the light and you don't actually see that. And you know, so I think if, if Friedkin had wanted there to be more ambiguity, I mean, it wouldn't prove that they're uh, perfectly sane. If you just see a bug, it could just be a bug. Um, but it, you know, he quite deliberately doesn't show, you know, he only shows you in these cut scenes, not in the actual scene itself. And so it that could be like a Hitchcock choice though, because um, one of the things that Hitchcock always said is the things that you put in your own mind is actually scarier than what would be put on screen, which is one of the reasons why 
the American version of Let Me In was really just not as good. There's a lot of CGI crazy stuff that took away from the storyline, whereas we can input our own thoughts into it and really go above and beyond what the filmmaker might put in. So it could be just that he was implanting ideas, which he did in The Exorcist as well with this demon. He kept flashing a face up on the screen, flash, and it would just be this little moment of something happening, but it was uh, making you come to the conclusion yourself and making you feel like this is a thing that's real. Because even in The Exorcist, you know, is there a demon possession or not? Is this just a case of someone being sick? I mean, they spent a long time in that film going to medical doctors to try to diagnose this girl uh, through science, because this is not a mom that believes in that bullshit, right? So um, basically, we are then led to believe. Um, and it, it's a lot of what happens with uh, Mulder and Scully and X-Files, where you have this person that is so believable and making you believe it that you're like, I know this is bull, but I see where Mulder's coming from and I'm almost taking his side on this. So uh, this is hard for me to deal with. <laughs> and I, I love it when any kind of film can do that, where they take me out of my own comfort zone and make me start to question my own held beliefs, you know? Yeah, there's actually there's no Scooby-Doo movement in this uh, moment, in this, right? Where, where they rip off the, the, the mask and you see it's, it was a con all along, right? You, 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 we are completely saturated in the mental states of the, of the principal two characters. Uh, and because they never get out of the delusion, the film never sort of let, takes you out of that delusion either. Um, and again, I think that's part of what makes it so effective. Yes, I think that's that's exactly the argument I was just about to make is is it's I think even if even if you accept that this is a movie that is completely true, in other words, even if you accept that Peter is completely credible and that this recounts and that this recounts, you know, a vast government conspiracy, etc. I think it's very important for the movie that that you never see any of the bugs, etc. on screen, because because the comparison to X-Files and Scooby-Doo is extremely salient. X-Files and Scooby-Doo, you know, by showing the monster at the beginning or what have you, they're, they're, they ultimately expose themselves as, as a sort of a fantasy, you know, where, where this is, this is, this is the, the, the core narrative is about the bug, you know, now we're going to watch Mulder see the bug and then it runs away. And then we're going to see Scully not see it and be all skeptical about it. You know, that's becomes what the story is about. Once you show the little CG thing crawling around or whatever, the fact that they don't do this. The fact that they don't do this is, again, I think highlights that it's not, it's not about, the movie is not about whether or not there's, a, there's bugs under this dude's skin. What, what the movie is ultimately at core about is about the, the sense of desperation that, and it's, it's about desperation in context of acceptance. It's about the, 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 the how, how some forms of acceptance can make people who in desperation just completely flip their lives over. And I think, and I don't think you can argue that this, that, I don't think you can argue that this doesn't happen for both characters, you know. Um, Aggie obviously, you know, goes from small town waitress to, you know, torching herself. And, but, but at the same time, Peter, he doesn't have a bunch of marks when we initially meet him. He isn't like, you know, ranting about the government and stuff when we meet him, he's relatively laid back and, and composed. And and his desperation and the, the, the desperation activated by Aggie's small measure of acceptance just causes him to just 
regurgitate all this stuff that he's been holding in and turn into almost a completely different person by the end of the movie. Um, and that's really what the movie's about. And, and if you show the bug at any point, if at any point you say this is what the story ultimately boils down to, it becomes entirely, the, it becomes entirely about Peter's quest to convince people of the truth. And it completely decontextualizes all that emotional interplay that the movie's really about. I think you're absolutely right, Antonio. This is this is a film about relationships and how toxic relationships can be. Uh, one line that sort of keyed me into it and probably became sort of the the, the thematic line of the entire film was uh, uh, Peter once asked Agnes, "How long have you been married?" And she says, "Long enough to still get scared at night." And I think that's first of all, that's a hell of a description of a marriage and hell of a description of a relationship. And I love how, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And if we analyze all of these relationships, there's all some degree of toxicity, except perhaps in the relationship between Agnes and RC. Aside from that, every relationship in this film is to some degree toxic. And I think that's the central theme of this film. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about the reality or unreality of the, the bugs, but I think the real question is the reality or unreality of um, a functional relationship that, 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 that um, leads to mutual acceptance to both characters and you know the betterment of each other's lives and that's that's simply not the case in this film and th this film is about how toxic relationships can be and how relationships as a thing themselves um have a degree of 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 uh of trap there there's relationships to some degree are traps as portrayed in this film and i think that's a that's where a lot of the writing and a lot of the uh, the creative energy is going in this film. I want to focus more on the relationships, but quickly before doing that, I want to veer back for a moment to the X-Files before we get too far away from that, because there was indeed a, 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 a notorious episode of the X-Files that involved bugs. And there was one moment in particular that I thought was quite clever where, you know, the, 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 the director or whomever had a fake bug go across the screen of the viewer and you know if, if you're watching it alone at night and you see what looks like a, a shadow of a bug going across your screen it's a big jump moment um uh, it was one of those little clever manipulations and i kind of expected that to happen in this movie and i was really glad that it didn't but again for precisely the same reason i've been talking about because i expected it because i anticipated it and you know they they, they didn't give me that uh, I felt that they 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 kept me um, you know kept me guessing and kept me wrong at uh, almost every turn. Um, so that's a, 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 a an interesting contrast between the directorial decisions made in the X Files versus uh, Friedkin's decisions here. Yeah, and and it's also interesting that um, that that particular X Files episode is exactly about uh, contagious delusions, and is called Folia de. Um, so talking about relationships. Um, now it's time for everybody's favorite moment where I put my feminist hat on and, and give you guys all a feminist analysis of the movie, okay? So, so if the movie's about relationships and toxicity, let me, let me posit an interpretation to you of the Aggie character, okay? So we know that the Aggie character is, comes from an abusive relationship, right? And, and so the movie explicitly frames her as, as lonely and as coming from an abusive relationship, and, and it also specifically frames her as not having figured out particularly healthy ways to deal with the abusive relationship. You know, when, when Goss comes back through the door, she immediately becomes much more passive, much more uh, 
willing to be pushed around by him, especially after he hits her, understandably enough. Um, and, and notably, she lets him keep coming through the door and doesn't say like, you know, I'm, I've got the cops. She doesn't pull a gun on him and say, you know, stand your ground log, get the hell out of my place. You know, there's all kinds of much more extreme reactions she could be taking to this, to this, you know, fairly evil and, you know, impositional character with no real redeeming qualities. Like he, he, he doesn't treat her in any scene in a way that you would walk away from that and think, oh, well, no wonder she fell in love with him. You know what I mean? There's no point at which Goss is remotely sympathetic interpersonally. And so, and, and yet she keeps letting him walk through the door. And so the implication here, I think is fairly strong that she has not completely um, gotten past her abusive relationship, right? And this sets her up to take the fall in the second relationship. This sets her up to become enmeshed in Peter's delusions and paranoia to the point where it becomes incredibly self-destructive. And so the metaphor that I pick up here, and again, you know, I'll throw this out to you guys, you, you guys go ahead and pick it apart, but, but the feminist metaphor here that I'm picking up is, is that, that as a woman, you need to be able to assert your individuality in a relationship over and against your partner. You need to be able to stand up to your partner and say, no, you're not going to do that to me ever again and you're going to prison. Or that's just crazy. There's no way that's true, you know? And and the fact that that Aggie is a damaged personality that is that has been um, operant conditioned perhaps to, to not operate in that mode, um, I think, contributes to the end of the movie very directly and significantly. You know, we, in fact, we can say it's sine qua non. If, if Aggie had a slightly healthier perspective, if she brought a slightly healthier perspective on relationships into the relationship with Peter from the one she had with Goss, we can plausibly argue the entire movie would have gone very, very differently and would have ended on a completely different note. So what do you guys think of that, of this particular feminist interpretation. So, so the TLDR is the TLDR is the message. The, the moral of the movie is is don't stand for abusive relationships. And before you even get into a relationship, make sure you're a strong enough person that you're willing to stand up to anybody who says crazy shit or does crazy shit to you. <laughs> yeah, but that could be said about guys too. I mean, I think a lot of the times in any relationship, no matter what the combo is, but this does primarily happen with men and women and men doing it to women. Um, is there's usually someone who wears the pants. They would say, who wears the pants? Um, and generally with people who aren't as educated or have a lot of baggage or a lot of brokenness, they will usually um, go to the person that they think is a little bit more put together. And as you guys said, when Peter was introduced into the story, he seemed like a much more put together person, especially since you know, she was getting beat by an ex and this guy came in and he was like, I got you muffins. <laughs> he seemed a lot more, um, you know, functional compared to her. So she might have just gone to him because he seemed better. Than now, her. going with the feminist interpretation here, the first cue we have that there's going to be something toxic and wrong about Peter is after he's obviously walked in on Goss just having beat the shit out of her. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say dude, should I drop an anonymous tip off at the cops? Or do you want me to go slash his tires? You know, like he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't express any concern other than for her immediate health. He doesn't say you need to not ever let that asshole back through the door. He doesn't, he doesn't have 
outrage on her behalf. And I think this is the first cue that we get that, that there's something in his personality where certain types of toxicity are just going to be uh, passed over. So, he does, though. He says, uh, I don't like that he hit you. I, I think her, his first concern is for her well-being and her, uh, like, he gets her aspirin, he gets her um, uh, uh, ice, he tries to to help her. And I think there's a, Goss is such a, a he sucks up all the energy in the room. And I, I think it's, uh, I, I guess I'm sort of quibbling with, um, the, the sort of Sunday, Monday morning quarterbacking of what got, what Peter should have done in those cases. Um, I'm not clearly, I, I, I understand that those were that the, the things that you suggested were, were viable things to be done. But I think that there's, that he's focused on her during those, uh, during those moments, not so much this, this, uh, you know, let's go get the cops and 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 focus on on the offender. He's focused on the victim rather than the offender. I guess is what I'm saying. Sure, but but think about how most movies play out scenes of domestic violence when somebody who's like a, a romantic interest comes in or whatever. You don't just see like a a disapproval expressed and then we move on to other matters. There's a moral outrage that comes with that almost invariably. Um, and I we... think that's why it made it seem so real because I've actually been that person and I hate to say it but i've been that person but it has a lot to do with how the victim is going to respond because if you call the cops and the victim is going to be like oh no it was fine we i bumped into a wall then you're incredible anyway and you need them to be on that page to stand up for themselves because if they're not standing up for themselves then you are just calling the cops for no reason and they you know brush it aside because that's actually something that was presented to me when i was in an actual courtroom talking about this discussion, they're like, why didn't you call the cops when you saw these things occurring? It's impossible to get that out there if the victim is not willing and open to talking about it because they are going to defend the person who's attacking them. They just will. And I don't know if that's something he knew, but he also did a lot of other things. I don't know if they actively did this, but you'll notice when um, Goss is interacting with Peter, He's making sure not to give him eye contact to try to show that he's not a, an antagonistic person. These are all things that you're actually instructed to do when you're around somebody like that to keep your cool and to calm down about it because otherwise it'll just escalate the situation. And he de-escal—he actually de-escalated what was going on by his behavior. Um, that's why Goss was like, whatever, just take care of her. Er, and he did. He got got our muffin and some aspirin. Psychologizes too much though, because we're, we're the 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 purpose of those scenes is not to depict, um, you know, a realistic re uh, relational interaction. It's to tell us the viewers things about the characters that we're seeing on screen, right? It has a narrative purpose, and that's why even though in real life the way domestic violence often goes is very quietly and gets pushed under the rug a lot, in movies almost one hundred percent of the time people flip out when domestic violence occurs. And and even and even if um, they don't flip out, they'll at least say, you know, something to the effect of, you know, do you want me to call the cops? What do you want me to do about him? What are you going to do if he comes back? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't really see this expressed too much in this particular context. And you and again, this is very carefully put together movie. You have to assume that all of these decisions are intentional on the director's part. Yeah, well, I think they're, they're intentional on the screenwriter's part or the playwriter's part. 
but I think to, to my mind, how I interpreted that was that it, it's, it's not that Peter doesn't care. Uh, it's that he's just so socially awkward. He doesn't know what to do. You know, th th this is not the kind of thing that he has the grace to handle. He cares about her. He wants to help her, but calling the cops is definitely not something he's going to do under any circumstances. He's, this guy's afraid of the cops as part of his paranoia. Um, so, I mean, that's how I interpreted that. But since we're talking about the feminist lens, and I think it's a very good one to bring up, Antonio. Uh, I want to come back to the character of R.C. here, because uh, one of the most shocking scenes for me and most powerful scenes is after, you know, uh, um, Peter sort of has his like seizure almost and he sort of starts hitting himself and they, they R.C. and Agnes hold him down and then Agnes slaps R.C. And that, that, that totally fucking nailed me it's like oh my god this is the one person who's clearly healthy in your life who clearly is there and can help you uh get away from this the, this this toxic guy and she just slaps her and you know and just cuts that tie entirely and rc understandably never comes back after that um and so this this, this comes back again to the thing the the the, the, it, the way i would put the feminist point you know again it's, it's one of the standard or you know old school feminist talking points like you know don't need no man right you know be a strong independent woman uh ashley judd's character agnes clearly does need not even necessarily a man but someone she's just so lonely and but she had rc and she had a really close i mean they were kissing each other on the lips they were doing some sort of sexual dance even it's it was in my mind i thought they actually had some romantic involvement at least at some point in time in their history so i i found it interesting she didn't see rc as that outlet but what's interesting though is i've been rc that has literally happened to me in my life and i had my closest friend in my entire life do that exact thing to me so i it's so real to me. It was like ridiculous when I was watching that. I was like, my life is being turned into a movie and I think it's very weird and creepy, but it's, it's one of those things where like, you have to be that friend that stands up for your friend. And if it means you lose them, you have to still do the right thing. And that's what RC does. Like right. that's, 100% what she does. Well, she tries at least, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and and that I think actually, again, is it's, it's part of what makes the feminist ana analysis of this film a difficult one, because I think that it really, I wouldn't say it puts the lie to the idea that you don't need no man, but it shows how shallow that can be when you are completely alone. And again, she has, she has the one friend with RC, but RC clearly cannot do it for her, not just in the, in, the, in the sexual sense necessarily. I agree, there's certainly some erotic tension there, maybe a history, but RC cannot meet her emotional needs. Goss definitely cannot meet her emotional needs. And so that's why when Peter enters her life, she is so desperate to keep him there because it's all she has. And so this sort of blithe, don't need no man, is it, it, it does, isn't taking, I think, the realities of human relationships seriously enough because we do need other people. We need other people to keep us sane and to, to keep us grounded. And unfortunately, it does the exact opposite in this case. You know, the, her desperate need to be recognized and to, to have someone appreciate her and listen to her and have someone she can talk to um, is, is, is what drags her over the edge. So the yeah, I mean, it's it complicates the feminist story, I think, uh, because it does show and put an emphasis on how much human interaction and human validation is a is a legitimate human need. Uh, I I don't know if that's true though. I mean, what what's the problem with um, with framing the movie in a feminist term as Aggie's tragic flaw is at the end of the day she needs a man. 
think the problem with that is that it's, I mean, it's, it's a tragic flaw that she is, I think, not strong enough to stand up for herself in that way. I, I, I would I'd prefer that way of framing it. But I think part of what makes her so sympathetic is, again, it's not hard to imagine yourself in her shoes. If I was alone and in a hotel in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma and desperate for any kind of human interaction, yeah, I could see myself, I mean, not you know, in, a, in a completely vivid way, but at least partially, the, the, the impulse to go crazy like that, to hold on to the one person that you have in your life. When you have you know, only one friend and an abusive ex-husband, the, the one thing that's good in your life, you know, how can you take this away from me? Like she says to RC, why do you want to take this away from me? That's heartbreaking because it's like, because yeah, how can you, right? That's, it shows how powerfully uh, she needs the other human being. And that to me is a realistic portrayal of human psychology. So it's not her tragic flaw. I mean, if, it, if it is her tragic flaw, it's humanity's tragic flaw. It, it's, it's human all too human. We need to talk to each other and be close with one another. And that's why part of the story is showing that her son went missing and she had been looking for him. Now she has uh, all the baggage she needs to really try to hold on to people because she's so afraid of losing everyone. And she is willing to go down uh, quite a rabbit hole just to maintain a relationship with somebody. And the thing is, I know that this happens quite often with a lot of women. They will get into these really tragic relationships with some very toxic people and they will uh completely cut off their family their friends um and and they do have some evidence that that is put forth by their new partner that comes into play that he kind of tries to isolate her a little um but there is definitely something that happens where these people become more and more isolated and therefore more capable of being um manipulated and delusional and um Honestly, I think that they both were hurting each other in the end. <laughs> I don't think either one of them was helpful to one another, but I think it did have an initial start of the isolating her from people being what started everything to go really wrong. Well, I, uh, two, two points about RC. First, um, she has a romantic partner um, at the beginning of the film. She, uh, she's on the phone with Ronnie, um, and she is called away because something happened with Ronnie. And then there's that, that second, uh, in the second RC scene, uh, there's a moment when uh, uh, RC, or Agnes reports that RC and Ronnie have gained custody of Ronnie's child. And uh, the quote is, uh, RC, or no, no, Arnie's, Ronnie is the name of, I'm sorry, I might be screwing up the names here. Um, but anyway, RC is going the to- voice, I think is the name of- Yeah, the voice. Thank you. Voice. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah Ronnie is uh, RC's actual name. So, uh, yeah, anyway, but RC both, uh, RC has a romantic partner. Um, and then there's some, we're given to understand that there's some degree of permanence to that relationship. Um, because they're adopting a child together. Um, wh what's also true is that in the first scene with RC, she suggests all of the things that you suggested, Antonio, buying a gun, uh, calling the cops. Uh, Agnes, Agnes dismisses all of these things out of hand, saying they just won't work. He'll still keep calling. Um, that Now, you can talk about whether or not that's bullshit or not. It probably is. Uh, it's probably sort of a, a, a defeatist um, attitude that Agnes has toward uh, toward authority and 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 uh, toward or even loneliness 
and loneliness. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, but I think that the, the central point about RC is that she is this positive presence. And I think the moment that I felt that Agnes had really gone over, so to speak, was when she, it's exactly the scene you're talking about, Garrett, when, uh, when she slaps RC and says, why would you take the one thing that means something to me? That's the moment when I knew that she, that, that Agnes had sort of flipped into uh into peterland and it's it's all as a result of these i i you know and i don't think it's necessarily just women i think uh everybody can can go into deep into relationships um i guess we're quoting fucking phil collins songs now um but we could, we're going into deep into relationships to the point where we take these relationships as our entire world and that is an unhealthy behavior um and that's also a human need. It's a human need to sort of be recognized and 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 assuage our loneliness. And to that degree, I think this has a this film has sort of a universal um, appeal to it. Uh, yeah, if the film has a social moral, I think the social moral is definitely that that healthy human identity is not found in polarity. It's not found in mirroring. It's found in a 360 degree view. It's found in having an angles on having people who have angles on you from multiple directions. And that brings us back to like cults, right? And one of the big things that cults do is they cut you off from anyone outside the cult, so they can't you can't get that 360 degrees. You only have that narrow path. Um, and and there's a reason why that works. There's a reason why cult leaders do this. There's a reason why you know people like Alex Jones or other sort of radicals want you to only talk to people who have already drank the Kool-Aid and accept this 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 particular interpretation of reality. Um, because if all you hear is that same sort of echo back, then that is the reality that you will accept. And so maybe this is a good point to transition from a feminist analysis to to a postmodern analysis of the film. We've been talking a lot about whether or not. Um, you know, there is uh, there's a true answer to this question, whether or not they're crazy, whether or not they're delusional, or whether or not they're what they're saying has some truth to it. Maybe the, the one way of approaching that question is to say that's the wrong question to ask, that that, that it, 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 that speaks as if there is some sort of top down transcendental reality uh, that is the case. Either they're crazy, they're not or they're somewhere in between. Um, and you know, we could maybe we could take that sort of the, again the postmodern lens to sort of say that you know the, the the film presents itself presents a reality that is sort of complete unto itself, uh, and we don't need to sort of go beyond it. We don't need to ask ourselves what's the truth behind this story. The story just is what it is. Yeah, I I think you're right, Garrett, and I also think that it's important to note that um, of the male characters in this film, the only one who is active in limiting Agnes's uh, social interactions is Goss. It's not Peter. Peter is, if you want me to go, I'll go. If you want to bring other people in, uh, that, that won't work. Um, although at, there are a couple scenes when Agnes tries to call the cops, but any sort of authority figure Peter is saying no to, but he, he's not limiting her access to RC, for example. It's Agnes who makes that choice to uh, to push RC away. Um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting analysis that, that I, I mean, this is kind of a postmodern film because we are taking we are subduing ourselves in the reality of only these characters for much of the movie. I'm gonna have to disagree with you. I think that he did make it so that she had to choose between him and RC. I think he specifically set it up that way and he knew which way it would go. I think he was purposefully, and I only, I'm only saying this because once again, I've lived it, 
Um, but maybe they, I don't know, maybe the writer didn't live it or, or know these kinds of things, but I've literally lived this where there's a form of manipulation where you set it up for the person to feel like they're the ones choosing that. And that's literally what Peter's character does throughout the film on other aspects too. So why not with RC? I think he was purposely manipulating the situation at all times to make Agnes feel like she was the one coming to these conclusions. Not that he was forcing it down her throat because a lot of people need to feel like they come to their own conclusions on things because we come from a you know time period where we'd like to think that we're pretty smart and we can figure things out on our own. Um, and not have somebody just dictate to us what we are supposed to agree with. So I think he purposely put his message across in a way that made her feel like she chose these things where she really wasn't. Because it's pretty obvious she was not in the mental state or the, uh, you know, intel intellectual ability to come to these conclusions on her own. Like he fed a lot of this garbage to her, including the fact that R.C., was all behind this. I mean, that's what eventually happens, right? She thinks that RC was all behind this. This is how they got the custody custody of the child was some kind of a um, plan and a plot with the government. So I honestly think he fed into that view, the Agnes. I think he led her down a path. I really do. That's, I think that, go ahead, Garrett, sorry. I was gonna say, I think that that kind of cuts both ways though. I don't think he has the mental capacity to deliberately manipulate her like that. Like if, if he were a literal cult leader, that's almost certainly what he would be would have been doing. But uh, um, I like like when he has the seizure, for example, I mean, you got, I, indeed, it's compatible with what's on the screen. I don't think it, it, the film is unambiguous on this point. That could be an act that he's putting on to control her. Um, but that's not how I interpret it. Uh, to, to me, it, it seems to me that he is sincerely you know, believes himself to be being attacked in that moment and and, and is, is reacting in earnest at, at that experience. So I don't think, you know, the, the, the way I see the character of Peter, he doesn't have the presence of mind to be manipulative. I mean, there's a sense in which, in, this, in the same sense in which all human relationships are manipulative, of course, sure, he's manipulating her, but it isn't some sort of Machiavellian scheme where he has this grand architecture plot to try to bring her in with him. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody actually does do that, though. Like, I think a lot of the times... And this is where this movie really solidly puts this forth. Our delusions uh, and our uh, manipulations and our lies we feed ourselves, a lot of the time we are completely, completely ignorant of what we are deluding ourselves with or what we're lying to ourselves about. So it's entirely possible that he was being manipulative and being a liar, but to himself as well. And um, we are fully capable of doing that to the point the of, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's legit. Like you see it happening a lot now. I mean, maybe I've been in different circles because of uh, certain family relations, but um, I've definitely seen a psychological adjustment on people that I used to think could think for themselves as of late. And it's kind of scary. Um, they, have no idea no clue that they are deluding themselves so it's entirely possible that he wasn't like plotting to be manipulative or plotting to do these things but was very much lying to himself because he very much needed that relationship as well and um i i'm gonna do my dude bro moment i have to bring up a rick and morty episode uh if anybody has ever watched that show um one of my favorite moments is when they are analyzing the parents and find out that they are both um, very unhealthy for one another. And at one point, 
the guy who's analyzing them says they're codependent and runs away in absolute fear and i feel like that is the best way to react to this film <laughs> is that they both were not very good for each other but they do work well together um they achieved their goals and their delusions together very much so um <laughs> Honestly, um, it, it, and uh, I apologize in advance to Noah for further um, crapping on his channel views here, but um, uh, honestly, if you wanted to make a macrocosmic analogy between the relationship you see in this movie, it's not unlike the relationship that Trump and his voters have, in that they're both lying to each other really hard and really sincerely, and it's super unhealthy, and everyone outside it can see how unhealthy it is, and they're both just in fucking love with each other. Now, not to get too political on that point, though, but I do, I mean, Chair, I think that restated that way, I, I'm more on board with your point that, uh, that that there's manipulation going on. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's uh, makes more sense now that you've restated it. But to the political point, and I, I think one minor thing that you said there was that, you know, you, you described people who you thought could think for themselves. And I think part of what this film does and does really well is sort of show how easy it would be for almost anyone if you removed social support, if you removed friends, if you lost friends, if you were alienated from the people who you thought cared about you because, you know, you were considering voting for Trump or stuff like that. But yeah, you might flee into the arms of a group that does accept you, um, that, that does sort of validate you and helps you, even if that's unhealthy, even if it's delusional. That could happen to anybody. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's uncomfortable to imagine the idea that we would flee to a cult or to a, a delusional relationship or to an abusive or a toxic relationship. But it's the same psychological mechanisms. It has nothing to do with the level of intelligence or ability to think for yourself or critical thinking. It's that deep emotional human need to be recognized and to be validated. And if one half the people are telling you that you're stupid, you're crazy, you're a Nazi or whatever, and these other people over here are saying, no, you're normal, you're one of us, you can be accepted, then yes, you're going to go to those people no matter how toxic the stuff that they are spewing in other contexts. And, and the important thing about that, the kind of, I guess, the moral of that is that is that you need to have that painful experience of dissent in order to be a stable human personality, right? That, that, that consensus reality is, is reality for humanity. But the problem with that is that if you're in a bubble, the consensus becomes warped. And so how do you how do you break out from that? And I think the inescapable conclusion of the movie is, again, you have to have that 360 degree view. You have to have people who, when you're full shit, are going to come to you and say you're full shit. And then you have to actually keep yourself in the mental frame to accept that that's going to be a painful consequence of living in a world where you don't end up going nuts and torching yourself. Uh, I think there's there's one important distinction here and and i think it is also something that we can differ on and still have uh, uh logical interpretations of the film i i posited at the at the beginning of this podcast that one of the questions that we'd have to answer is whether or not peter is being deliberately manipulative and and, and not manipulative in the sense that he knows that something is wrong that is that something is bullshit and then he's convincing agnes of the truth of that bullshit and i think that's one difference between trump and peter whereas i think trump knows 
to some degree at, at least once or twice when he lies that he's lying uh and that it's that it's a cynical uh selling of bullshit and that they're gonna lap it up no matter what and i don't know i mean i, th I think that's a that's an interpretive question that I think we all have to ask ourselves as we come away from this film is, is Peter, does Peter believe everything that he's saying, or is there a moment when he's bullshitting them and trying to convince them of a lie that he knows is a lie, right? I, am I making myself clear here? Yeah, um, I recently watched the movie Gaslight, and I think that that's a very pertinent film to bring up with this. Um, it was very clear in that film that the protagonist was purposefully being manipulative to make her feel crazy. Whereas I don't think that that is the case with Peter at all. Um, but I definitely think he was being manipulative, but only because he wanted to have a bond with someone, not necessarily because um, he is full of shit, but I've noticed with my own interactions with narcissists and people that have that kind of uh, behavioral problem, um, the question that always comes up when I'm having conversations with others when I'm trying to deal with that person is, are they aware that they're lying, bullshitting assholes, or like, are they not? Because that that then brings up the whole free will determinism, maybe. Like, <laughs> that's where that whole debate starts up, right? Like, are they actively being shitty, or are they just... Uh, a little broken inside and we can't really blame them for it and that's where you have to decide how you react and that's where the problem comes right you're trying to figure out how i'm supposed to react to this character or this person that i'm interacting with am i supposed to be mad at them or do i need to feel sorry for them and help them and um in a lot of the older films it was really obvious this person is a bad guy he's walking like this and he's going after the girl but with peter you're like i don't no, and that's what real life is like, right? And um, I kind of like that films have gone to that place, but it also is really hard to interpret them at that point, right? Because but now it, it's open. I think the reason that it becomes uh, let me uh, real quick. Uh, I think that's that's what postmodernism has done, right? It's it's removed this objective truth, and and I think that that's where we come from that's where we go to the point where we're like okay trump's an asshole because he knows he's lying but peter's a tragic character because he's unaware of the 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 ridiculousness of his own point of view i'm sorry antonio i interrupted you but go ahead um I, yeah all I, all I was gonna say is i think i think in terms of deception that it's care that we need to be careful also not to indulge in a fallacy of the excluded middle as well because because i think deception exists on a spectrum it's not binary as this as these questions have been you know it's not does he know he's lying or is he just being completely sincere in a lot of cases that question doesn't even arise on the mind of the interlocutor because it doesn't matter he wants it to to believe it very desperately it's very important for him personally to believe it and so the question of am i lying to this person or not isn't even on his mind. Okay, yeah, and I think that's, it's good to come back now to the character of Dr. Sweet because I think you can compare and contrast. Dr. Sweet is clearly deliberately manipulating Agnes. Uh, there's, there's no ambiguity in that. Um, uh, he's trying to get what he wants and he doesn't particularly care whether or not he hurts her in that process. Um, he's you know, obviously throwing some dangerous emotional landmines out there. Um, now again, you can, or make a sort of ends justify the means argument there, perhaps if you want, but uh, um, uh, there, there's nothing I think uh, uh, ambiguous about that. 
I do want to mention quickly because I wanted to come back to one of the points that you made, Jim, about Doctor Sweet's character. Yeah, I can't I can't square the point about him uh, uh, smoking the the crystal or whatever it was. That that is a strange one. But the other point you made about him playing into her delusion. Uh, I'm I'm not a therapist, not a uh, uh, but my wife is, and you know I've talked to her about this. You know she's she's worked in prisons before, uh, and I sort of asked her like you know what do you do with delusional uh, 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 inmates, patients. Um, you know, do you ever sort of play into their delusions? And she she actually, you know, she says yes, that, you know, if you have a patient who, A, is almost certainly not going to be able to be cured in any sort of traditional sense of that phrase, um, and playing into his delusion is the only way you can get him to behave, then you play into his delusion, because the alternative is he does something that gets himself hurt. Um, and so if, if your only choices are play into the delusion to keep him safe or try to sort of, you know, uh, stick with the real reality and uh, 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 endanger his well-being, the, the ethical thing to do from her point of view, at least, was was to very clearly just do play into the delusion. And I'm sort of I think I'm inclined to agree with that if you accept that basic dilemma. And that, again, brings us right back sort of to the postmodernism, right, is, is, is maybe it doesn't make sense to ask what's the truth here. Uh, uh, maybe instead it, it only makes sense to say what how the world appears from the various points of view that we're presented with. Actually, that is so interesting you say that because um, uh, it kind of reminds me of, I can't pronounce the name of it, but it's a, a Kurosawa film, uh, Rochamon. I can't pronounce it, but um, it, it plays into that, like, what is truth so well, uh, where you have all these different perspectives of, the same exact thing happening and there is no truth at the end we don't know what is the actual truth because we've heard all these different perspectives and they're all a little skewed and that's actually how reality is and being able to make a, a film like that um like that that makes you question what is truth and it doesn't matter because what the truth is is uh more about like what is humanity what are our morals? What are the things that we're actually trying to uh, create as a world? And that that does have to do with postmodernism at this point, right? Like that's a huge part of that. Um, so I I really like that you brought that up. So yeah, and there's uh, now that I think about it, actually, there's another more recent film uh, called Stonehurst Asylum with Ben Kingsley, um, and there's a scene in that where you know, Ben Kingsley plays a doctor. Uh, who is deliberately playing into the delusions of one of his patients, a patient who believes himself to be a horse, and he's feeding him an apple. And one of the other doctors says, "Wait, you're playing into his delusions. Why? What? What's? Don't, don't that will inhibit the cure? You won't be able to cure him if you do that." And Ben Kingsley's response is, "You want to make a perfectly miserable man out of a perfectly happy horse." <laughs> that was just a great little line, and uh, wonderfully delivered by Sir Ben Kingsley. And uh, uh, you know, it's it's in some ways the opposite of this, right? And and and, and I think probably the more traditional role in in Bug curing them. It might not necessarily make them happy, but it certainly would make them not suicidal. Um, and uh, 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 yeah, Shutter Island. Someone mentions that, and Shutter Island is another good example of of, of trying to cure the delusions in these ways. I think, it, it, yeah. I mean, I guess we're we're going against my uh, my my two years, two weeks of uh, paramedic training on mental health issues, where they said never, 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 never do that. So, uh, you know, I, you know, Sirius is uh, is is far more um, more experienced than I am. So, uh, so I guess I'm sort of approaching uh, approaching it from a different uh, angle. Um, I think the difference between bug and some of these other films that we we're mentioning is that I, I haven't seen the Ben Kingsley film that you're that you're talking about that's uh, 
that's a great line that from a film I haven't seen, but um, Shutter Island, the goal, the explicit goal of playing into the delusion is to get him out of that delusion. The explicit goal of that therapeutic adventure is to get him to see an objective reality. Uh, one of the things I, th I love Rashomon, of course, it's a classic, it's a great film. Um, I, w I came away from that film thinking that the last story told was the one that was closest to what happened because it was the one that was able to take all the previous stories I, I saw, some of which were diametrically opposed, and be able to make all of them true. Uh, Bug, on the other hand, the, I, I think we're right to view it in a postmodern lens because there's no, aside from those cutscenes at the very beginning and the, the uh, post-credit scene, um, I think we're given to understand that this is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm siding on the idea that this is, uh, this is a delusion that becomes self-destructive, but um, anyway. That's not how I remember it. Uh, sorry, a little, little, little Rashomon reference there. Right, and there's also uh, there's also a film called Vantage Point, which is even worse. Um, it's it's sort of poor man's Rashomon, um, and and it's it's not it, it tries to do the same things and doesn't work. But so I'm um, I'm I'm looking at the clock here, and I think I want to sort of try to stick for our general sort of two hour time frame. I mean, I don't necessarily want to force it to end if we still have more to talk about, but I do want to start sort of angling a little bit towards wrapping it up. And so I have a question for all of you guys. Um, we've been talking, doing a lot of analysis and again, sort of, I think, praising this film rather highly. Are there any criticisms you have? Anything you think the film does wrong or that you wish it done different or you think could have been done better? Um, one of the things I saw come up a lot from people and their criticisms of it was that it was trash. Um, it's an ugly film. It is ugly, but I think it's purposefully ugly. Um, you took a, a movie like Monster where you have Charlize Theron, where she purposely goes out of her way to make herself uh, become this really ugly monster. Um, and I think that similarly, this was done with Bug. You have someone who is generally known as being a very attractive actress that a lot of people think is beautiful. And she was greasy haired. She um, didn't have on makeup. She was smoking and drinking and doing drugs and was wearing really ugly clothing in an ugly place. Everything was ugly, gritty, gross, grimy, slimy, gross. Um, so I think a lot of the times when people are criticizing it by calling it trash, it's like, I think you're missing the point. <laughs> like, I, I, I think you yeah, missed the, a point. The style, is, the style deliberately, I think, evokes cinema verite. And that's, I think that's part of the, part of the point of the, of the visual style. I didn't, I found the visual style very coherent and I, I didn't think the movie was beautiful, but that's not the point of the movie. Um, as far as critiques, uh, I thought the soundtrack was, it was completely forgettable. Um, no, but but more seriously, as far as critiques, my biggest critique for the movie would probably be that the that the ambiguity in the movie is kind of clunkily rolled out. They they there are there are ways to do that kind of ambiguity, like particularly resorting to like end credits still shots. Is that's just cheesy? Like let's keep it real. Like that's it's not it's not it's not super rigorous direction there it's a little lazy um and i thought i thought a number of the other like sort of ambiguities and details were likewise kind of lazy another thing that i didn't particularly like about it was the use of cuts to like you know shots of bugs and stuff like that 
those are obviously jarring and they're intended to evoke a particular, you know, emotional color or what have you. But but without some context and without some some uh, some information as to what we as the viewer are supposed to be experiencing or taking away from this, um, it really just kind of jars you out of the movie and and it resembles some of those like cheesy procedural TV shows where like in between like you know scene ends as they're walking off to, toward the toward the crime scene and then you see like you know cut to like 15 shots of flashing police lights in three seconds and then now they're at the crime scene or whatever it, it was evocative of that in a negative way so um so I, I'd say that there's some quibbles about how the movie's shot the movie's soundtrack is forgettable um as far as the way, as far as the way the movie and the movie's ambiguities um, could have been more, more cohesively developed, I guess. Um, where I don't think the movie has any weaknesses is I think the performances were Oscar worthy. They were amazing performances by everybody. Everybody came off completely as a believable personality. There was no point at which I was like, oh yeah, she's just reading those lines. Um, the acting in particular was super, super spot on. And as I said before, and this is actually something that I, that I came around on. When I first saw the movie, I kind of was disappointed with the resolution. I wished that they had made a little bit less ambiguity and made things a little bit more clear. But over, over the course of thinking about it, I've come to realize that, that the, having the ambiguity in the movie and precisely never, let, never letting the viewer draw a conclusion is, as I pointed out to you before, the thing that decisively intercuts this between a monster fantasy and an actual movie about relationships. So that's where they really do it well. Um, I'll, uh, I'll go and, and then I'll also sort of wrap up and give my own, uh, give, give my star rating of the film as well. So it, since we're sort of ending uh, here. Um, so I, in order to answer this question, I have to, uh, I have to give my, history and experience with this film. I saw it in 2007 um, the first time and I loved it. I can't actually remember what criticisms I had of it. Um, I don't know if I had any at the time. I, I you know, it was, it's 11 years ago, so it's hard to remember what criticisms I had of it. Um, and I didn't watch the film. And then I knew that I was uh, directing a staged version of it. So um, I, deliberately didn't watch it prior to uh, prior to the stage production just because I, I wanted to have my own interpretation. And so when I watched it again last week, um, it wasn't so much criticisms as uh, like, oh, he made that choice. That's different from the choice I made. The choice I made was clearly better. Um, so that, those were the, the sort of bullshit egoistic uh, thoughts that I had in my head. Um, and I tried to, it was one of those things where I was like trying to argue with myself and say, and saying, no, that's, you know, this is Billy Friedkin we're talking about here. Let's not, uh, let's not, um, shit on his work in favor of your own. So it's really hard for me to have any sort of objective point of view of the movie because I lived it for, uh, for, six months as I was working on the project. Um, and so that that sort of colors my criticisms of it now. Um, I give this film four and a half stars. That's probably the highest I've been on a film in, in this podcast because I love the story, I love the themes. Um, the, I, I think 
if I were trying to quibble with it, I would say that maybe it's a little bit too talky for a film, but I, even then I love characters talking, so that's not even much of a quibble. Um, I love this movie and I love this story and I love what it's saying about uh, relationships and, and how um, we need that. It's, it's the old Woody Allen joke at the end of uh, Annie Hall. Um, you know, a guy, a guy goes uh, into a doctor's office and he says, Doc, you know, I think my brother's crazy. And, and the doc, doctor says, well, why don't you have him committed? And he said, well, I, I would, but I need the eggs. Um, and that's, you know, the joke about relationships, that they're crazy and irrational and stupid, but we all keep going back to them because we need the eggs. And, uh, and I think that that's a, a lot of what this film is saying about relationships, and that really resonates with me. So it really... Um, I like it. I like the story, and that's 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 why I stand. So I'll throw it back to uh, to you, Garrett or Shira or Anton. You left out the the crucial setup to the joke that my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. Um, oh Jesus! Oh fuck! <laughs> How did I fuck up that joke? It's my favorite joke of all time, and I fucked it up. What the hell? Uh, sorry oh, to make you put you on the spot like that, Jim. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Can so, we cut that part out? <laughs> no, I love this. I actually think that we should get a screenshot of Jim feeling bad about how he put on the joke. Ah. So, Antonio, I think it's great that you mentioned the soundtrack's forgettable because I actually have to agree with you there. I can't really remember a single song on the soundtrack, but I definitely remember every soundtrack. All right. I remember every single song on Jim's version of the soundtrack. So uh, um, his his production, uh, the soundtrack was, was was indeed superior. I think at least if, if memorability is any is any measure in that regard. Did Did um, he play? Uh, I got you under my. Skin. <laughs> <laughs> Alas, no. That that would have been probably a little too on the nose. I think. Um, well, but, uh, I'll, I'll give him a brief internet fame. Um, it was by an original Oklahoma. I had an all original soundtrack by an Oklahoma band, uh, actually Texas, Texas and Oklahoma band um, called Fish Fry Bingo. If you can look up some of their stuff, they're awesome. I lost track of them, but uh, so anyway, we're once again referencing a, a thing that only you and I have seen, Garrett. So. But anyway, to, to, to come back quickly to the acting, um, I, I can't say I'm generally a fan of Ashley Judd as an actor. Um, I, I've, I can't think of anything else I've seen her in that I would say I even thought she did a good performance in, but then she was phenomenal in this. I think this is, at least of the films of hers, I've seen easily her best work. Um, and so, yeah, I, I tremendous credit to her and to the whole cast I think, yeah, for being uh, wonderfully acted wonderfully shot wonderfully directed and again this this the the, the screenplay is just uh, phenomenal i'm i'm with you jim i love 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 this movie i think it's it's flawless there isn't anything i can think i would change about it um it's just it's just a film that i can watch again and again and again and keep coming back to i find it endlessly fascinating and insightful and legitimately scary and in in, in, a, in a social way that cuts deep to the heart of of the need for human beings to be seen and validated and understood and believed um, more so than we need to breathe, more so than we need to, to, to stay alive. We need that. And that's a genuinely terrifying thing. I mean, Jim, you said relationships are traps, right? And they're, they're, they're toxic, they're poisonous. But yeah, we, 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 it's the only thing we have to eat. You know, the, the eggs may be toxic, but if we don't have them, you know, we starve to death. We, we, we need that more than anything else. Uh, and it's only only there, but for the grace of God, that all of us don't fall into these 
the, uh, the a relationship so toxic and so demoralizing that it destroys our sense of reality and our sense of self. And that's a genuinely terrifying thought, um, much more terrifying than any vampire or zombie or anything like that, in my opinion. So on a star rating, if we're going to start going to the star rating, I give it five out of five. Uh, there's there's no criticisms, no complaints at all that I have about this movie. I, I will I will give you the one legitimate thing I got mad about when I watched the movie, okay? Answer the fucking phone. It is so loud and jarring and annoying, and it happens over and over again, and I get it. it it's, it's needed to be there, so I'm not even, like, saying it's wrong that it's there. But that phone ringing, and it's those old-school, rotary-style, horrible, annoying-sounding phones, and it's constantly going, and I'm just, like, just fucking answer the phone and I was I was like legitimately getting angry at the movie for that but um I understand why it was there um who was calling by the way was it Goss like what's what's no no <laughs> you want to know what's uh, funny okay can I can I say something really like I'm gonna age myself hella right now okay so um I was watching an episode of Melrose Place that's very similar to this movie. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go there. So there is a scene where Allison is uh, getting stalked by someone who keeps calling her phone. And she starts blaming people at work. She And she starts getting these weird flowers and messages and stuff. And she's, like, trying to figure out who's doing this. And it turns out to be her angry ex who's doing it. And throughout that entire episode, the guy she is currently dating, Billy was telling her this is very common behavior for exes to engage in. There's all these studies talking about it. And I, I don't know if you guys ever watch Aaron Spelling shows, but he's kind of a hit the nail on the head type of a person when he writes, when he gets the writers to do stuff. He's like, let's talk about AIDS and say AIDS 5,000 times in an episode. So um, I think they were actually legitimately trying to educate people about these kinds of toxic relationships. And um, I find it really funny that there was an episode of Melrose Place that was very similar to the movie Bug, <laughs> but um, it, it even has some of the horror elements of it. But I feel like it was Goss, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just in, interjecting that in because I watched a Melrose Place episode. So Goss, oh, Goss is who Agnes thinks it is, but... Uh... You know, if you if you take the conspiracy theory point of view of this film that, you know, the government is after you, then it's possible that it's uh, that it's not. So. But the phone calls were happening before Mr. Uh, Bug Guy comes over. So it's it's hard to tell. I mean, she seemed to think it before she met Peter uh, that it was Goss because he had the phone calls didn't start happening until Goss left prison. But when she was going on her crazy rant she believes that the government was behind it because RC purposely put Peter into her life. So that was how they, uh, they filled in their plot hole that way. Um, <laughs> who knows? Right. I think that's what, what Antonio is trying to say though. Like it, it can be ambiguous and that's kind of what makes this film so fucking interesting. We wouldn't be able to talk this long about it if it was obvious at the end, you know? So I think that's kind of what makes it beautiful. And, and um, I absolutely love this film. I will give it a 4.5 out of 5. I think it was absolutely interesting because real life is much scarier than the boogeyman. So um, I, I loved it. And it scared the crap out of me only because it's so realistic. Yes. I, I just realized that I actually haven't given this film a rating yet. So I guess that's my turn. 
Um, so, so I guess in addition to what I said previously about the film critically, the other, the only other critique that I have to offer is that, um, it, it's very tightly focused, but it's possibly too tightly focused. I honestly, this could have been a film that could have been 10, 12 minutes longer than it was and not lost anything in the, in the inflation. Um, you could, they, in particular, what I thought that there were a couple moments where it seemed to me that Aggie's character accepted the kind of BS line that uh, Peter was feeding her a little too unquestioningly. I think there could have been maybe three or four more scenes in there where she where she expresses even some sort of tentative, eh, and then he he kind of pushes as you see several other times in the movie, and then she she goes okay. Um, just to develop the character a tiny bit better. Um, that said, though, it's it's a it's a tightly crafted movie. It's quite compelling, and one of the things that I come come to a lot in this podcast is uh, the question of is a movie scary. And my my answer is that I don't usually find movies scary. That I find movies um, unnerving or not. So as far as as far as the unner I wasn't scared at, at any point in this movie, obviously. But but this is one of the most unnerving movies that I've seen. And it's because because of the psychological realism of it, and also because the the horror of it is not what people are experiencing externally, but the processes that are roiling inside of a person and careening them off a cliff. That is much more unnerving to me than you know some bear with antlers and a forked tail running out at you out of the woods and eating your child or whatever. You know, much much less intimidating. So. Very, very freaky movie. Um, I'm going to give this, I usually give it out of 10. I'll give it an 8 out of 10. Um, pretty, co very compelling, very tightly crafted. I don't know how many rewatches it'll sustain, but uh, but as far as a first watch, just absolutely, I was like, holy shit, the whole movie. Which I guess is a, that's a five star. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I just want to throw in there, I really think that the huge part about this film is that it seems like a drama for so fucking long and it's so slow rolling and you know it's building to something and then it spirals so out of control that you're like, what the fuck am I even watching? And I think that's what gives it some staying power for me where I would probably do some rewatches because... I'm going to have to see <laughs> when things spiral out of control again. I have to see if I can um, piece it together. I, I don't normally rewatch the movies that we um, that we do that I've never seen before. But I think this was one I will probably go back to because what the fuck <laughs> was happening in that movie. So. so I think this is one of the, one of the most highly rated uh, films that we've done on the podcast. If, uh, if, I'm, if I'm, my memory serves, a couple other ones are, might be up there, uh, that high seventh seal perhaps, but uh, um, this is definitely a success for at least the four of us, obviously not, uh, not everyone is, is, is here this evening. Um, but uh, that speaks pretty highly of the film. Um, so one, one semi-closing thought, I suppose, is, is Jim, this is probably, you, you might be more positioned to answer this, but if, if either of you, the other two of you have any thoughts, I can't, I don't know that I can think of any other horror plays, you know, I mean, like, I don't know, Todd, I guess, is kind of a horror, um, but, uh, it, it, you know, there's plenty of horror movies, but I, I, there's not too many, as a genre, horror has not really found its home on the stage very much, and that's part of what makes this, oh, yeah, Little Shop of Horrors, that the uh, 
that that that's that's uh, a little campy and musical though like this legit disturbed me and that was one of the interesting things when i watched the movie i was like this feels like a play this is very dialogue driven and it's all secluded to one area and there's hardly any actors i feel like this is a play and then i look it up and i'm like okay yeah it was a play so it makes sense but how cool is that and i would like to encourage anybody who makes plays or directs plays please do more horror plays i would go to all of them i would go see every single one of them that is fantastic i didn't know it was a thing and i'm super excited so um please do more yeah i um we're getting jekyll and hyde the woman in black in the the chat and uh, those i think those those qualify um one that popped into my head uh it's one of your favorite plays too it's by martin mcdonough garrett help me with the title um uh pillow man pillow man thank you yes, yes it's another good excellent horror play uh but yeah those you're right that there are very few horror plays um and and i think you but i think you have to go this route i think you have to go psychological thriller um i mean in many ways i think creep felt like plays uh creep and creep too um i think you could actually do those on the stage uh fairly easily oh my gosh are you gonna do that <laughs> please do that no i'll make it happen i know you're probably still watching but i i will say this you guys said something interesting because you uh, put this on as a play. You put out a scent of gasoline when they were going to set themselves on fire. How many elements of other sensory stuff did you implement in the play? Uh, I'm guessing you guys did the smells, you did the sounds, like uh, how much did you guys go into it? Did you like ever adjust the temperature in the room to make it feel cooler at times? Did, what, how far did you guys go in, in getting into the senses of the people when you performed this. I asked if I could turn the air conditioning off and they wouldn't let me. Um, but I really wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to turn the air conditioning off in the second act because the the way the play is structured, um, it, it sort of starts off uh, with the scene between Goss and Peter um, and all of the flypaper is, is uh, that's the start of the second act. And so I wanted to turn the air conditioning off um, between- It's a claustrophobic movie. So that would actually make a whole hell of a lot of sense. I think they should have uh, listened to you there. I think that would have been perfect. I, I, I think they should have as well. And uh, I, we, we also had the, uh, the, the helicopters and I turned the volume up to 11 on the helicopters. Um, and uh, we had sort of the music that goes along too. So, um, and uh, we covered the entire set in foil and uh, um, flypaper. And we had the um, the bug zappers behind the audience um, so that they were sort of immersed in it. It was sort of a thrust. Uh, we, we treated it as a false proscenium. But once the, once the bug zappers came out, they were behind the audience. So you heard this constant buzzing during that last scene um and that I, is fucking beautiful and there was one, it. thank you thank you <laughs> i love it that is like because that's that's the kind of thing i would try to do is to try to make people feel uncomfortable feel like am i going crazy um what is what is reality yeah that's well, I don't, I don't listen to audience reaction. Like I stay away from the lobby, but, uh, what I, one of the things I've been told was that people were itching themselves during the, uh, during the production. And, um, 
the other uh, interesting that is such a huge compliment dude i that is a huge compliment because that's what i was doing when i was watching the film as well i kept like do i have and when they would twitch i'd be like oh there's something in my hair ah. <laughs> that's beautiful and uh yeah the last thing is um i turned all the lights off for the scene uh when peter and agnes wake up in bed and so the only light in the entire room was the one that peter was controlling so the entire scene was lit by them positioning this one lamp um by their faces um so there were no there were no overhead lights during that scene except for one time when Agnes walks off and then I had to turn the lights up. But aside from that, it was just complete darkness except for this one light. So those were, uh, that was it. But uh, aside from that. Shut up, you. Hey, I'm gonna rub your ego. That's fucking brilliant. And I think it's so cool. And uh, yeah, I I hope that you can meet up with Duplass and, and, and make Creep the uh, play and yeah, make that happen. You guys should. You guys should all tweet out that uh, Jim here should do creep the play with Mark Duplass. He he likes to do some weird, you know, random projects. That's like his his mo. So let's make that happen. I want to see Jim make creep. <laughs> all right. Okay. So I think we're about at two hours now. Um. So why don't we head to wrap up? Does anyone have any sort of last thoughts or any other thing else that uh, they want to throw in before we we, we call it a day? Good night, and don't let the bed bugs bite. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. I think good night, and don't let the bed bite. That's fantastic. All right. Okay, that's that seems like a good note to end on. So um, I don't think we have another uh, one, uh, another film coming up on the on the schedule anytime soon. But hopefully, we will get back into a more regular rhythm uh, in the coming weeks. Um, uh, so if not necessarily next week, maybe the week after that. Uh, we'll put something else on the, the burner and hopefully have uh, more more thought-provoking conversation. Thank you all very much. Really appreciate your time, your attention, your your thoughts, your opinions, um, and we'll catch you next time. Matt, everybody. <laughs>